Software is broken, but it can be fixed. Test Double's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. Test Double is looking for empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers. We work in JavaScript, Ruby, Elixir, and a lot more. Test Double trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a 100% remote, employee-owned software consulting agency. Are you trying to grow? Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety in projects, working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at Test Double. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash join. That's link.testdouble.com slash join. everyone, welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 245. My name is Shante Martinez-Thurman, and I am here with my friend, Tim Banks. Hey everybody, I'm Tim Banks, and I am here with my friend, Damien Burke. Hi, I'm Damien Burke, and I'm here with my friend, Artie Starr. Thank you, Damien. And I'm here with our guest today, Roni Abovitz. This is actually the second time Ronnie has been with us on the show. Uh, the first time we unfortunately had some problems with our audio recording. We had a really great conversation, so disappointing, but I'm sure we will have an even better conversation the second time around. Ronnie is a technology founder, pioneer, inventor, visionary leader, and strategic advisor with a diverse background in computer-assisted surgery, surgical robots, AI, computer graphics, and visualization, Sensing, Advanced Systems, Media Animations, Spatial Audio, and Spatial Computing XR. Roni has a strong history of creating new technology fields and businesses from the startup garage onward, including Magic Leap, the world's leading spatial computing company founded back in 2011. His new stealth startup, Sun and Thunder, he plans to launch in 2021, and prior to Magic Leap, he also founded Mako Surgical, a medical software and robotics company specialized in manufacturing surgical robotic arm assistance technology. He is deeply into film, art, animation, music, recording, AI, robotics, ethics, and philosophy. He is also a senior advisor at the Boston Consulting Group, advising a small group of deep tech startups and a few Fortune 50 companies a member of the Tau Beta Pi Engineering Honor Society, and a two-time world economic technology pioneer. Welcome to the show, Roni. Thank you for having me again. It's a pleasure. So our first question we always ask on this show is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? I think my superpower is not being able to do a podcast the first time correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think I had a really good response last time, but I think the main one is I'm just like a space cadet and you could translate that into just, I have like a very freewheeling imagination. So I think that's always been my super, I could always imagine or have a creative idea around a problem and really imagine things that, that don't exist, that aren't there yet. Um, I think that's been always really helpful in, in anything I've done. So have, that's probably my main superpower. I don't know what that would look like as a superhero outfit. And I think I gained a second achievement level, which is sort of some level of like insight or intuition into knowing things. 
which I, it's really hard to explain, but I feel like I didn't have that. And then like in college, I had like a really interesting experience, which I probably won't get into a lot of detail here, but I think I, I gained that achievement level. And I feel like I have both of those now. I feel like I leveled up and sort of gained this like insight, intuition kind of thing that I didn't have before. And I think I, those two together have been helpful. So there's probably many more achievements to unlock, but I think I got those two so far in the game. You leveled up on intuition as a result of an experience in college. <laughs> yes. It was, it was an interesting experience. I had a transcendent experience. <laughs> well, that sounds exciting. You know, I think before my question was, how did you develop that? Like, tell us a little bit about your background. Like, what kind of family did you come from? You know, was this something that you think was cultivated in childhood or just something that kind of happened as you kind of got to adolescence and then to into college? My mom's a painter. Uh, so she's an artist and she was pregnant with me walking around the campus at Kent State during the Kent State shootings and kind of had to run away to not be shot. So that was I was kind of there, but not there. So, she, you know, she was an art student at Kent State at the time. I think she said to me, like, at some point, like, there was difficulty in the pregnancy. So they had to give her some kind of morphine or something that probably got into my brain. <laughs> so it probably scrambled it a little bit. Uh, I'm not sure about all that, but who knows what they did back then. So there's a little bit of that. But like, you know, my mom's a freewheeling artist. So I kind of grew up that my dad passed away a couple of years ago, but always entrepreneurial, also artistic. So kind of had this like freewheeling imaginative household where no one told you you couldn't do anything. So I think that actually helped a lot. And, and uh, nobody was born with like a silver spoon, like both my parents were born about as dirt poor as you can imagine. Like my, my dad grew up in a house that had like no windows. So when you'd visit like my grandmother, like chickens would literally fly through the window, land on your bed. When you're a kid, you think it's like the greatest thing in the world. And like, I think I swam in a bathtub that also served as the place to keep fish. I think my, my dad's mom would bring fish to the market and, and sell them like a carp or something. And I thought they were my friends and didn't realize they were turning into dinner. So I think that's why I became a vegetarian. So like we grew up really poor on both sides. Everyone was self-made and freewheeling and imaginative. So that probably did help. Yeah. I think for myself too, just growing up poor helped with my imagination. I just dreamed of all these amazing things I would one day have as an adult. So I, I, I happen to think it's a superpower too. It's, it's pretty cool. Thanks for sharing all that. So I guess what I'd like to know is, you know, coming from that kind of background, what first was your your jump start into, you know, using technology or being interested in technology? I think I was always simultaneously interested in like science and art at the exact same time, which is odd, which makes for a good misfit. Because either you're like the art damaged kid in school and you hang out with the art crowd or you're like the science nerd. And you hang out, but I like was both. So there's not really a good place where if you're both to hang out, probably just being really curious about how everything works and what's going on behind the scenes. Like why are things the way they are trying to imagine them? But uh, I'm, I'm not totally sure. I just sort of always was into both. That is a very good question. It's kind of asking like, a, like if you're a fish, how did you get like fins? I'm not, like, I guess they grew, but um I don't know. Like I just seem to be equally into 
into that. Probably Star Wars, if you really get down to it. I think like I saw Star Wars as a kid and like suddenly like that's what you want to do. Like you want to build the next wing, fly next wing, blow up the Death Star. Like that probably had a lot to do with it. I actually got to meet George Lucas, which was super awesome. And I'm like, you're responsible for my entire path in my life. Like <laughs> science and engineering, wanting to do all these crazy things. It's all your fault. He's like, oh, my God, don't blame me for this. <laughs> But no, it was wow. in, it was in a funny way. That's funny that you because the last time the conversation we had, Roni, we talked about all these cool people that you've met that have influenced you, and we and I asked you like, is this a sim? Like, how how are you meeting all these amazing people? And I, think I'm pretty damn sure it's a sim at this point. <laughs> Definitely a sim. I'm I'm very I think close. I'm convinced to that. now. We can, we can sure. get into that later uh-huh. if you want, but I, I I think it's a sim. I'm not sure who's running it right now, but it's contest you wanting to do that. So with all this creativity, what were some of the first things you started dreaming about building? I think as a kid, I wanted to make a solar powered airplane, which, which sounds like an odd thing, but I was like weirdly into solar power. Like I wanted to like solar powered cars. I started to get solar cells from like radio shack and solder them up into stuff and like spin motors. I'm like, that's so cool. Like, it's free. There's like no, no battery needed. And then of course you need batteries to store it if there's clouds. But I I was thinking like, that was really neat. It was just like this magic of like sun on this thing on this chip. And suddenly you get electricity out of it. it was like, Whoa. So I, I I think my uncle gave me like some radio shack science kit when I was like really small, I started messing with it. I had a solar cell and I, I figured that was like magical and I got really into it. So I don't know why I didn't pursue that because it seemed like that would be a good thing to do today. But I was like really into in the very beginning, like solar powered, you know, building solar powered everything, especially solar powered airplanes. I wanted to build like some perpetually flying. Actually, I designed something that won a state science fair award that looks like pretty much looks like um, later on after that, there was a plane that I think flew across the United States, like a solar powered plane. And it was very similar design. So I was actually kind of happy. Like I was a little bit in front of all of that, maybe five years or 10 years ahead of that one. Just thinking about there's, there's so many things like that that are magical. Just, you know, you've got this conversion of sun energy to electricity, right? And there's so many things like now we take for granted that are just kind of there. Like, oh, I have, I have the internet in my pocket, you know? And I feel like we've lost some bit of that wonder with taking some of these things for granted. I was talking with Shantae a little bit earlier about how, how dreaming gets stifled, how creativity gets stifled. And and we end up kind of in this mode where, you know, we're kind of doing things the way the world expects us to. And, you know, we've got jobs and this path of life that we're supposed to follow. And, you know, these rules are the ways that are things are supposed to be versus that passion of creativity, of discovery, of wonder, of, wow, isn't this amazing that, you know, sun energy can be converted to electricity. I wonder what I could do with that. I wonder what I could build. I wonder what I could create that doesn't already exist. Where do you think that spirit comes from? And is there a way that we can create more of that in our culture? 
It's it's a great question because I think I think there's still kids who have this experience, but I think less kids. I think it was just totally unstructured imagination, unstructured play. Like all my friends when we were kids, I mean, I I didn't let my daughter do this, but we were like eight, nine, ten years old. We'd grab like a garbage can lid, you'd like make a sword out of a branch, and like we'd run around in the woods like fighting dragons. There's no adults around. Dozens of kids having some kind of like full on whatever we wanted. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're just running about till almost like nighttime, you know, deep in the woods, like the kids from Stand By Me, the movie or something. And we got our bikes. We're riding miles away. We do whatever adventures we wanted. Like, I, I remember a couple like friends of mine and I, we'd walk along the highway, which is incredibly stupid, collecting beer cans because we want, we thought, wow, look at that. We can collect beer cans and like just. I don't know why we're like nine years old. We thought that would be a cool thing to do. And like, we, we, we would like figure it, and then we'd cut them and make airplanes out of them and just craft stuff. And we're like, that's probably dangerous. I don't recommend kids do that right now, but the idea of like unstructured play, there's not a game. There's not something someone designed. You're not watching television. You're just like running around in the world doing stuff and your brain and your imagination have to like fill in the gaps. Like, I think that, that's what people really should be doing. Whereas I think a lot of kids like do this now. Here's like a tablet. It forces you to think and patterns your thinking in a certain way. And that's actually scary because everyone's copy pasting the same device and running on the same popular app or whatever. And that's like patterning your brain to be caught in a, a certain way of thinking versus like this unstructured thinking, which is like more rare right now, I think. So that sounds like something that'd be lovely to get back as an adult. Do you have any techniques? Is this something you do? Do you, uh, do you have ways of provide, of structuring, <laughs> of getting to that unstructured play as an adult? I'm an anomaly because I, I don't think I ever got structured, which is, I think I'm fortunate, but I, I don't, not unfortunate. I think it's fortunate that I never got structured. So. Trying to think if you got caught and how would you break free? But um, I think I really never got caught in that net. I think I've always been like a wild fish in the ocean. But like, well, how'd uh, you stay out of the net? That's also I, something I'd like to hear. That's, that's an interesting. I never had a job, like an actual job job. Like college, I started my first company and never really worked for anybody. So I was like, I figured I'm unmanageable, so I can't work for anybody. I might as well start my own companies. That was a saving grace because I, I think it would have been difficult to work for somebody uh, to conform and work in somebody else's system rather than to build something and try to make that a place people want to be at. But then it's weird. is like you become the man and you're like, oh, my God, what am I doing? That, that's a whole nother topic. I won't get into this second. Well, but, but do you provide that sort of structure and patterns for people who work for you? In the beginning of all the companies uh, I started and I'm doing this again with the new one. It's always been like freewheeling, awesome. I think the people there in the beginning, like that was like the greatest time ever. But then as you get bigger, like once you get to like past 20, 30 people, even 30 people unstructured, big crazy, like some folks start to come in and crave that structure. Like this is chaos. Like what's going on? And then you have to, then you're like, okay, we got to like order this and we got to processes and operating plans and all these other things. And then next thing you know, there's like 2000 people working for you. I'm still trying to figure out how do you maintain that wonderful, free spirited, free willing environment 
at bigger scale because at bigger scale feels like you got to create all this framework and all these boxes for people to be in and processes and people are demanding it. Like sometimes employees get upset that it's not there because they're so used to being in that cage for somebody else that they're not used to being free and they want to run around and go back to that cage. And I'm like, be free. And they're like, no, so it was really like, like people who worked for me in the past will tell you that. Like they will basically say it was like this odd thing that like I was pushing them to be more free than they wanted. And then the ones who really liked it got shunned as the things got bigger because like, what's that person not conforming? Like they're supposed to follow the procedures. Um, and why are you spending all your time with them? Because they're like the ones that don't follow the rules. I'm like, I don't like following the rules. So I guess, I guess what is a good technique? I think like I, I, I have a recording studio. So I think playing really loud guitar helps, you know, it, it sort of lets you feel like you can like do anything you know, really loud guitar through a big amp with a lot of fuzz pedals. There are things like that, or you go on a long hike we would do ocean kayaking, go like a whole day ocean kayaking where there's like sharks and weird stuff. And suddenly you're like far away from like a computer. There's like, you know, the universe and wild animals and like you're back to like primal nature again. You feel like you're just as like wild free spirit. Like I try to do that as much as possible. I think those things help, but it's hard though. If you, and then you got to go back on like a Monday morning and there's some, like office space type manager asking you <laughs> for a TPS report. You know, that's like really difficult. And I feel bad because as the companies I built got bigger, I probably had someone who had someone who made someone do a TPS report. And it, and it always bothered me, but it's like you can't run at a certain size without the TPS report. Um, even though nobody knows what a TPS report is. If you, if you don't know what it is, watch the movie because it, it does, but it's, it's like, <laughs> Like why at some point you you have like someone two or three levels below you make someone else do a TPS report? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, it's like who created this damn report? You know, it's like, and why are we succumbing to the demand of like a report or empirical data to to move forward and work it in our life? As you were sitting there talking and everything, it, it brought me back to that comment we I had again of. Jeffrey West from the Santa Fe Institute, who talked about his his concept of scaling, you know how that happens um, in all all things that exist in the universe. There's like this, you know, a, a ratio of scale that we can't really escape, and it's a it's an interesting phenomenon that I'm still trying to understand, you know. But I I think Roni, where I feel really kindred spirited to you is. I'm, I hate to be tamed. And then the, once I feel like we have to scale or tame, I'm like, oh, this, I, I want out of this. Like, get me out of this game. Get me to the, to the, to the new game where I get to, like, germinate something and start it. And I, there's no form. And I love that. I wonder, though, somebody like you who's created all this amazing, amazing technology, like, aren't you the guy who could, like, maybe make this a reality where we can create those experiences <laughs> using, you know, technology? to kind of help us get in and out of these dream states, in and out of these like waking and kind of normal states that, that society has us kind of locked into. Well, here's a couple things to, to think about from what you're saying. One of them, I have a notion of, can you build a gigantic decentralized, I don't even call it a company, but like a guild of free people who are, connected through like blockchains and it's 
does not look like the pyramidal structure of a company, but it's like some kind of like guild of artisans. And we sort of like blockchain to each other and emerge and do things together. Like, the, like orcas will form packs to, because it's, it's the right thing to do, but there's no, well, there actually is an alpha orca. So you end up like, you do have a small pyramid. So it's like the alpha orca that fights and then you become the Ronin orca. So there's a little bit of that, but like, you know, is there, is there like a, a decentralized guild blockchain thing that could have hundreds of thousands of people that could build totally new tech platforms that are not the, the central power uh, tech companies? I, I've always been pondering that and wondering how is that possible? And every time I've thought about it, it seems like people collapse back into the same structure of the pyramid. Like, they want a king. You, you try to create something that doesn't have a king or queen, and they want the king again. You're like, why do we keep doing that? But like, I somehow believe that there is a way to do that, like to have that democratic, free-spirited thing. I think that's what the United States was founded on. Like, let's not have a king. Let's just have someone who's kicked out every four years. They're nothing special. Don't make a big deal about them. But now, 200 years later, we made that person more into a king. We give them special powers. They can do things and they don't get, you know, they're above like normal citizens. Like how did that fall apart? But I, I just keep wondering, is that possible? Because I think big tech companies reflect more of a monarchy. There's like a, a central figure that have massive power. There's the inner court that have massive power. And then there's like the serfs who all work for the central authority. And it's, it's basically like we fought against that and, and the, you know, to free ourselves of monarchies, but like our co companies and tech companies look more like monarchies, you know, they could be benevolent or not benevolent, but we still have not been able to get past that King over people thing. I just, it perplexes me and why we keep repeating that. Well, um, I, th I think there's, there's a few things with that. You mentioned like, you know, scale, like and as you get bigger, um, and you know, as you add more people, you add more ideas, and you add more more notions on what the right thing to do is or what the right way to go is. And obviously, as you as you do that, you know, more folks are going to agree or disagree on it. You're going to have various ways of opinions. You end up getting factions, right, or tribes or whatever it is. Certain, you know, this group of people think that way. This group of people think that way. And then you introduce politics, right, because you have to find some way to get all these folks um, with different ideals to to agree on a common purpose or a common goal, right. And when you do that, you know, once you introduce politics and you start to introduce, you know, the notion of leadership, stuff like that. But I think it's interesting when we look at it in the, in the guise of like big tech companies and how we have these regions. I, I, a lot of this ends up coming is because that, that the people that end up profiting the most off of the tech company are the ones that get to make all the decisions, right? It would be an interesting thing if there was a truly democratic company where everybody from top to bottom made the same amount of money had the same amount of equity, had the same amount of, of say in the company, right? And then if you're a leadership role, it's more like maybe strategic vision, but you know, your, your CEO is going to make the same amount of money as your junior developer, right? Because unless you do that, you don't have a democratic, you don't function, you don't have, you have a hierarchy by definition. Yeah. What, what we're talking about is, is power structures. And every time there's, every time there's a power differential, there's going to be a power structure that, that supports that. And the reason why you said earlier, you're talking about how you were having people like, no, be free. There are no rules here. It's not a cage. Uh, people resist that because they've been lied to. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they say like, you know, you don't have to stick to my rules. All that really means is I'm not going to tell you what the rules are, which is horribly traumatizing. And so until, until you have, until you have that equally distributed power, you're going to have that hierarchy and that structure. And, you know, somebody's going to want a TPS report before they can go forward on something. Are there any examples where that's existed for some period of time, even in a small form, like the equally distributed power, anything? I've seen it in co-ops. I mean, it requires, it requires a lot of trust. And the more the more people you involve, the more differentials you're going to find. Indigenous communities and, and I think so scale small is co-op definitely. Yeah, this. I mean, there's definitely people that are trying to do the sorts of things that you're that you're talking about from an organizational structure standpoint. But as you've also pointed out, there's there's dynamics of resistance to it of it not necessarily being what people want. You know, I mentioned this book before of flow of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's book. And the thought that comes to mind is we're talking about in you know, this dynamic of being pulled toward wanting order and structure is, you know, a big part, a big uh, part of his thesis in the book is that we have a desire for order in our consciousness. And we have a gravity toward wanting order in that, in that chaos and disorder is uncomfortable. So, when we're in that uncomfortable situation, we can learn skills to create our own order out of the disorder, to be creative, to think about ways to construct new ideas and stuff in our head and make new games. But like our brain, like wants some kind of game to play, wants some kind of order to build around. And I feel like you know, we were talking about these sort of these nets that we get caught in and the way that our education system is structured, the way that we learn, you know, in school is a net in itself. We, you know, we learn how to play the game of, of school and teach people how to follow the rules and be really good at following the rules and, and playing the game that's given to you. And I feel like if we want to teach people how to create order out of disorder from their own consciousness through creative play, that we need a learning environment that is oriented toward those things so that we can get practice at it. Being in a situation of being uncomfortable, being around people that are good at those kind of things that we can learn how to mimic perhaps and shift those, shift those things around that way. Uh, acquaintance of mine we had on the show a while back, Sam Aaron, he does Sonic Pie and he's, he teaches little kids how to, how to code, learning how to be a music DJ. And it's the coolest thing. I, I was reading this post about a little six year old who was super excited about DJing it at her next, you know, birthday party come up. And, you know, she was going to get really good at DJing and mixing her own beats. And she's six years old. And I'm just like looking at this, how beautiful it is. And that, you know, seeing that, that fire, that inspiration to create like light up in someone. Once that fire is lit, it keeps fueling itself. It keeps fueling that desire. And if I, I feel like there's something very powerful about music because you've got some basic rules of how things work, but this huge space to create in. And almost everything we can relate in various ways to music. And what if we change the way 
that we educated to, to focus on some of those musical sort of principles. And, you know, this, this could be something that's a adult learning too, is how, how can we learn to, to riff together in a musical context and learn, learn how to do jazz? Oh, that's very cool. Making a note on that. What I heard is that we should all start jazz bands. Yeah, same. That's, that's all good with me. But see, if they get too big, right, then you have to have a, a conductor. <laughs> like a quartet, big band at most. No, no, yeah. no. Or, or well, see, you, just, you see, big band has to have a conductor, right? That's one of the things. Right? Well, see, a quartet, I, I played a big band, band without a conductor. Nah, I was in, I was in a couple myself. We'll, 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 we'll talk about that one later. But actually, that's a good, that's a good thing. Because if you have like a trio or a quartet, you know, everyone can kind of go and it somehow works. You all have to pay attention, but. If you try to do that with like 10 people, 20, 50, 100, it turns into noise. Like I also think like it depends on what kind of music you're making, right? A, a, symfo- a symphonic orchestra generally needs a conductor at the very least, a concert master who, who can who can wave their bow and, and, and get people on time. But I've been in drum circles of 300 people that made beautiful music with absolutely no leadership or, or any sort of control like that. Well, I think the the difference is that in the drum circle, I don't think there's a, a preconceived plan that's being executed. It's all improv, right? It's all made on the fly, and then you, you kind of pick a direction. I think it's different when you have a set task or thing that you're going to going to accomplish. In the case of a symphony or any other thing where we have, we're not making up the music on the point, on the spot. We have a set score we're going to we, we know what notes are they're going to be we're going to be done so and i think there's space for both of those right there there's space to say that we're just going to see what comes out of this right and then there's another one that says okay well we have to do this thing right you know one one is one is very much creative and i and i love that but the other part is 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 executive um you know in in the case of like you don't want for example surgeons just going to go in there willy-nilly and just say we're just going to see what we find and just do whatever right there there has to be a plan there has to be something that gets executed you know any kind of, of engineering feat, right? It has to be done with a plan and a structure and, and different things have to be done at certain times. And so I think there's a place for both, right? In, in any healthy culture and society where people that create, right? And people who design uh, certainly should not be uh, encumbered by definitions of structure. But if you're going to create or design something that's going to withstand a hurricane, there is obviously going to need, be, needs to be uh, some concerns about, about structure and how things are put together. But let me let me give you guys a comment on on power structure, and I'm a bit of anomaly because I've I've always been like super uncomfortable being in that alpha power spot, but I've always had to be there to build a company, and some of them got quite big, and the bigger they got, the more uncomfortable I was because I I didn't think a human being should have that power. I thought it and I by the way the question about smart people and billionaires I've met a bunch of those billionaires that you've mentioned. I've also met some incredibly smart people. They're not always directly correlated. There may be a smart billionaire, but they're not, it's not one to one. Like a billionaire is someone who's like highly optimized at like a certain function. Some of those brilliant people I know are super poor and, and they have like, they have built in things in their mind that like they, they don't want to do the things that they might see oppress others to get to a certain place. They just don't. So they're rather more happy in their lot. Uh, making twenty five thousand a year or whatever they're doing, but I think what's interesting uh, about trying to not have a power structure is how people 
just default go into this like algorithm in people's brains. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. Like when one of my companies was small, I had a largely empty office. I had a couple like cool collectible vinyl toy things. I love like weird, like, you know, like Jap, you know, those kind of anime vinyl toys and, and just like Star Wars thing. I just have a couple of them on my shelf. So when people would visit like new employees or partners, they would like bring something and put it on the shelf like like an homage offering. I'm like, that's weird. And then the more of them, people thought now it was required to bring one of those and make an offering and leave it on my shelf. So a few years later, I like my shelves are covered with hundreds of these offerings. And I'm like, what in the heck is going on here? <laughs> like, I didn't ask anyone to do it. But people felt like it was like, you know, if you're going to go see the alpha wolf, you have to bring them like a dead rabbit and leave it at the at, as an offering. And I'm like, and it was just amazing. And it's like all this stuff. And I would like give most of it away. But it was really weird how everyone has this algorithm that they feel like if you're going to go visit the alpha leader, you've got to bring a gift, an offering, a moose, whatever you happen to have caught. And it was just, uh, and it was like, even when we, when we dealt with people from outside the US, it was in more extreme. Like you'd have this like whole formal exchange, you need to bring them a gift and, and, and they would bring you this gift. And I was like, what is going on here? Like, this is like thousands of years of like evolutionary biology wired into people's brains, making them do things. I'm like, I don't want to be that. Like, that's not what we're doing. We're like totally building a different social order. No one's paying attention to me at all. Um, and everyone is just like, nope, we have this code built into our brain and we're just going to do that. I found that to be really strange to the point where, you know, I built two decent sized companies and each time I felt like I had to throw the ring into the volcano, like, uh, like in the Hobbit. Uh, or Lord, Lord of the Rings, because if you don't, it just kind of gets to you. And I felt like I, if it, if it started to get to me, I'm like, I just need to throw it into the volcano, start over again, hand the, hand the ring to someone else and, and, and like go back to the base camp and try it again, which I'm doing now. But I, I found it like both times I built successful tech, but not the non-hierarchical culture I had in, the, in mind in the beginning. Which I'm trying to do now, again. You're, I'm not you're sure. How do you fight bio? How do you fight like human biology? I'm like, don't do that. Stop bringing the moose and the rabbits by. Like, what on earth are you people doing? And they just keep doing it. I, I don't know what it is or why, but it's like we are hardwired as humans to like follow an alpha wolf. And in fact, the alpha two and threes feel like they actually have to challenge you in like a tribal fight. And if you don't put them down and like show the rest of the wolf pack that you're the alpha, then they'll try to eat you. It's like, what is going on? But that is what happens at every company and every country and every government. And it's so weird that we have not evolved past the way we were thousands and thousands of years ago. Is it possible, Roni, the endeavor that you're working on now to use technology to dream of new futures and realities that does kind of decentralize social structures in the sense that like, cause my feeling is like the collective consciousness is why we're doing this, right? Like we can't, we can't escape ourselves. So if we give ourselves new experiences and we know what it feels like to have decentralized collectivism, then we may choose to do, to build new cities and families and companies in a decentralized structure because that power and oppression is just, it feels like a human like uh, something that, you know, that we can't, like a human instinct that we can't escape, but I'm just not convinced that that's real. I think we've just, it's been something that we've 
a story, a narrative that we've been stuck in. So I think we have to build a new story or create a new story and a new reality. And I think technology can allow us to do that. And people like you and everyone on this call, uh, we can do that together. Yeah. I was thinking about that too, of software gives us this ability of reality construction. And if we've learned certain ways of doing things, if we operate in a, in a certain net with you know certain rails, playing certain games, and we don't have a template for anything else so that outside of that is just disorder and unstructured and unknown, then we're going to cling to the familiar structure. We're going to cling to what feels safe and known and predictable and that we know how to operate. And I feel like the way to escape that is to create an alternative that offers structure of a system that gives you a set of rails that kind of reorient thing, reorients things and creates opportunities for creativity, for entrepreneurship, for ideation, but creates new sorts of structures where those sorts of things can thrive. And I don't think we're going to get away from technology, but we can reinvent our interface with technology. We can reinvent the shape of our social software infrastructure and how we relate to one another through technology. And I feel like to overcome that gap, what needs to happen is a vision, really, is the the sort of putting together a vision of what that might look like such that we can build it. I spent the last decade going really deep into that, like about as deep as you could possibly imagine. And it started out actually a few years earlier, like 2008, 2009, working on this like call it like a like a Miyazaki film world project with with my friends at Weta. And that, and we spent a few years on that. And then one of the things I felt was if you're going to I won't get into the details of the project is actually something uh, Sun and Thunder will hopefully be releasing. But if, if if I felt if I was going to go into this idea of like hacking into reality, like what is that? I actually needed to go do that in order to be credible about making a story about it, like making a film about it or film world. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go on a tangent. So I started a tech company with the idea that we're going to be reality hackers. Like we're going to figure that out. And we're just going to go all the way. We're going to like hack into the visual cortex. We're going to go full on. And it was amazing because like all these people, like people who created the Matrix and Neil Stevenson from Snowcraft, all these people started showing up. And then some of the very early stuff we did, we started to go really there, like like really deep. Not stuff that you can productize, but we're starting to like unlock like things about how the human brain works and our connection to like this weird connection between physics and how our brain constructs reality. What does that mean? And how do you actually get in there and actually hack it? We did some stuff that freaked me out so much. Everyone in the early days was like, whoa, like maybe we need to take a step back. I, I think that's actually what happened. We sort of had those whoa moments. Let's take a step back and let's not unlock full atomic fusion right now. Let's do something you can actually maybe ship. But we're going to places that we're not ready for as a species. Like we really had those moments where we would see over the horizon. That was intense. And 
one of the things that made me walk back, and I think a couple of early folks, that we just felt like human software, our human biology is totally unprepared for this. Like we are not prepared to hack reality. Like we are, we are not uh, equipped. We're not ready as a species. We, we would screw things up beyond all belief. Like look how badly we're doing on social media, like which is like so thin and almost nothing. And then when I think of like digital realities, whether it's like AR, spatial computing, VR, those are like simulation training grounds for the real thing. It scares me when people are talking about like neural implants in the brain. Like, no, 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 we are not ready for that. We have in our sim testing on like social media and in uh, digital realities, we're not doing a good job. We're kind of creating fairly awful places with occasional cool places. I thought, okay, we're going to unleash this like renaissance of art and imagination. It's like, no, that's not what's going on. It's going on in little pockets, but for every art and renaissance thing, you got like nine or 10 horrible things. Some things I can't even mention, like, I mean, I, I used to tell our investors, there's someone's going to make trillions of dollars doing the things we refuse to do. Because the level of control and weird stuff you can pump into someone's brain, there are companies I'm not naming, you, you can imagine why they're spending like six to eight to 10 billion a year trying to conquer digital reality, why they have reality labs, you should be really frightened about why they're doing it. Um, right. Like, I started out with the notion of can there be this like real creative imagination renaissance? And I actually believe there can. But at the same time, it's like every time you have like a, a superhero, there's like something else, like the supervillain appears. It's like a law of the universe. And I feel like, I feel like the more we were trying to do good in hacking reality, you would have bad equally emerging and equal strength, maybe sometimes even larger. I, I don't know what's going on, but it did get me to take a step back and wonder the human software is totally unprepared and so backwards. Like we're running DOS 1972 right now, or even worse than that. Like our software is like middle ages and it's so easily manipulatable and triggerable and all kinds of horrible things. Like the human, we have, we have not transcended. We are not where we need to be collectively. That doesn't mean there's not individuals or, or groups who are, transcending and becoming more enlightened and like evolving in a good way but there that the net human condition seems to be quite in a bad place right now it actually scares the crap out of me so i did take a step back from the notion of like i don't know we're ready and maybe we just need to take a breath and figure out our social system our human biology like what's going on because we're not we're not we are evolving at so much slower pace than the rapid accelerating pace of our tech capabilities like we're building insane tech like ai will pass us all in this decade and like what what the heck are we doing to ourselves like we're we're unleashing things in the world we have no idea and society's not capable of predicting the nonlinear event impact is really scary and we just keep doing it so i like i don't mean to be like all all pessimistic but i think the hope of a of kind of this creative renaissance is something that's a beacon. It should be a beacon for some where you're free or decentralized. You're not controlled by like this monarchical power, but too much of the other side is actually winning right now. Too much of the other side is like dominating everything. They, because they're playing the game that I think our brain is wired to. We're wired to a, a pyramidal structure. The people who realize that manipulate it. They take advantage. They, they do all the things they figured out the social psychology. They've hacked 
the code of the human brain and they're making tons of money doing because they know how we are. You know, I don't know if that's just how it'll be forever or, or is there going to be an actual enlightenment for people? That, that made me take a step back from hoping that everyone will just have this inner artist wake up. I, I'm now not so sure. I love that question, though. I think it makes me it, it makes me go back to something I've c- continued to say. It's just like, do we get off of get off of our technologies or get off of the the things that we believe connect us? Because um, we are we are ourselves technology. So, like, do we need to be constantly manipulating something else? Like, we could. There's a lot of power in just like being together in real time and real life together. And I think if we can go back to some of that, we can re-find ourselves because, and and this is coming from somebody who spent a lot of time and money in meditation and self-transcendence. Now I'm kind of at this place where I'm like, do I need to transcend or should I just be right where I, right where I am? Because the past, the present and the future are actually all one, you know, and should I, should I pay attention to what, who I am and what I am and where I am a little bit more? versus constantly thinking in the future. This is so hard for me because I am a futurist. I'd love to think and imagine new possibilities. But I just wonder, that that's kind of one of the mantras I've been sitting with in the last six months or so. I think one, pick up what you're saying, we had a, a pretty high level Tibetan Buddhist who built one of the great temples in Tibet, like where monks meditate, and they, they build it from memory. There's no architectural plans and he was one of the leaders that he came by and I showed him some stuff we were doing maybe five, six years ago. He's like, that's amazing. And you're cheating because we, we take years to learn how to do that, but we could do more than what you're doing. You're just like level jumping. Yeah, I get what you're doing. I understand it, but like you're taking the elevator, the sky tram up the mountain. And, and there's something about like, like you're not equipping people to know or, I, I didn't really understand what he was talking about at the time. I think I have a better grasp now, but like, it's like, we're not spiritually ready for what we can do. And they, they spent a lot of time doing this. Like they have their own virtual reality. In fact, what was interesting was I said, we're not really building technology. We're simply trying to unlock the what's in the human brain, which is an amazing computer. Best GP in the world is the visual cortex. Best display is our brain. That's all there. We're just trying to tap into it. He's like, we do the same thing uh, using different tech, but you're kind of cheating. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Like, it's like you're, you don't really have the satisfaction of climbing up to mid base camp on Everest. You just took the elevator and suddenly you're there, but you don't have the, your lungs aren't ready. You didn't climb the mountain. You're not fit. I feel like technology is doing that for us. Uh, spiritually, we're just not ready. Yeah. I, I spend a lot of time in somatics, right? So I'm in a couple of somatic communities and we talk a lot about those somatic reps. There's a lot of wisdom in experiencing something firsthand and witnessing somebody else do it alongside you in that community um, because we learn that way too. And, um, you know, if, if you're picking up on other people's energetic vibes and feels like you, you collectively, whoever's in that space in that room, it is something that cellularly, somatically, you can, you will, you will become a little bit wiser from. I don't, I can't describe it. It's only when I'm like, when I'm in a collective with my yogis who are, we're, we're, we're doing deep breathing together or we're doing asana practice together. And there's just this thing that I experience that I've never had on any drug or any kind of 
tech, you know, using technology, whether I put on, you know, a, a headset or something, I can't describe it. It's just, it feels out of this world. And it's almost like only those of us in that room would ever be able to describe it. And maybe it's indescribable, but it's, it's powerful. So I keep going back to that. What, one of the things you told me was like, okay, you'll help people realize that reality is just an illusion, but are they equipped to understand that? Like that will just freak them out and they're going to break down. And now what? When you actually really get that, when you really understand like how reality is constructed, if you go deep and get into that, which which we had to do to build some of the things we were doing, it does kind of weigh heavily on you because you're like, what the heck is actually going on? All the, a lot of things you were taught growing up that your parents or grandparents might believe, and then you're like, or you might read in a book, and you're like, suddenly facing that, the reality you know is not stable, it's liquid, it's hackable it's editable you're like what is going on like that that kind of like opening up of your of your mind is an interesting place but it's no one's equipped to really go there you almost got to step back and say i'm going to forget i saw that let me just go back and watch a football game and it's like way easier to go back and play xbox right now (laughs) like those those sort of discoveries have been happening for all of recorded history and i think farther and people get there via uh, ethnogens. They get there via sitting on a mountain in lotus pose. And sometimes they come back and go, okay, I'm just going to pretend that it's real. <laughs> and sometimes they don't and, and die under a Bodhi tree, whatever. <laughs> but, but these are things that these are not new realizations or discoveries. No, no, they're not. But what's weird is the, the vast majority of people have not had that. Right. Right. Vast majority, like think about how many people in this country are are not even on the first step of any form of enlightenment. Mm-hmm. The actions they take, the things they believe, the people they vote for, you're like, they are so orthogonal and distant from that. So you do have pockets of people who've had enlightenment and transcendence over the last thousands of years, but it's a fractional minority. And, and that's, that's what's like, what, why are the rest stuck? What, where is everybody stuck on and why? Because they want to be. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Ego they, death is death. Nobody wants death. <laughs> they're programmed to be. I think we're conditioned. It makes me think too also of Stanislav Grof. I'm not sure if you all know him. A famous transcendent or transpersonal kind of What's his last psychologist. Name? Stanislav Grof talks about the spiritual emergency. I'll send you, I'll, I'll drop the link here really interesting too and did a lot of holotropic breath work to get people through transcendence and used a a lot of other i think drugs and synthetics to have those transcendental experiences but they talks a lot about the spiritual emergency and i think right uh, roni talking about like when we have this this realization that oh my god you know uh, what is reality (laughs) because reality is something that we all can define differently. And I think even this is something that I I think quite a bit about with the future of work and technology and all of us coming together, this convergence of, well, what, who am I without that role, without that title? Who am I without my computer and without my phone with with the internet in my pocket? Like, I don't know that we've spent enough time examining who we are going in. We're always looking out and I think we have to come back into ourselves to be home. And I, I'd like to see, and I am trying to do more of that, trying to, to kind of cultivate those experiences with the communities that I run circles with or the things that I have influence on is just 
let's go back into ourselves because there's so much power there. I talk about this as the uh, the high school the high school basketball version of reality, right? If you've ever been to a high school var- basketball game, championship, league championship, whatever, and like you got the crowds yelling and screaming, and everybody's everybody's enthused and and, and excited about what's going on. Uh, if you were to go down to center court and wave your hands and go, "Hey, hey, 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 everybody, everybody, whoa, whoa," none of this matters, <laughs> right? That's really rude. <laughs> You're right. It doesn't matter. It's high school basketball. <laughs> but we have chosen to make it matter because that's what makes the game. If you don't care about the rules, you don't have a game. If you don't care about the characters, you don't have a movie. If you don't care about the desk and the computer, <laughs> you don't have a job. And so, so we make these decisions. We can see through, we can see through it if we choose to and see that it's an illusion. It doesn't really matter. But like, if if that's what you're here for, go for it. Have fun. If well, it's actually, not, yeah. yeah. Here's a question: Just because it's an illusion, does it mean it doesn't matter? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, actually, uh, just just a hint at that. We made this digital person. Her, her name was Micah, and like people's reactions to her were unbelievable. They they began to have like relationships, and we. Had to like change behavior code around Micah, and if you actually broke her personal space, she would leave. She'd walk away and actually open a like a door in a wall and disappear. Um, if you behave badly around her, you would lose access. We had to create this like social code of conduct because people were it was odd. I, I won't get into all of it, but then then we sort of fixed that, and it was just interesting that people would like want to be with her because she would like gaze into your eye and pay attention to you looked amazingly real but almost like hyper real like the most real person who like was totally focused on you and like that attention level from this illusion made people feel good so even though she's an illusion that feeling was real and reality is illusion anyway so is she just as real as anything else and and w- was something going on like it, it was kind of odd like is is there like is is what you feel what you carry with you actually that thing anyway even if it's all an illusion, and you get to decide that for yourself uh, with and among your culture and your and your peers your group. Well, I think joy matters for its own sake. Connecting with one another, having fun, experiencing joy—it's a reason to live. It's a reason to be. And if we're playing a basketball game together, it's fun. The people that are in the crowd enjoying the game and, you know, getting involved with it emotionally too, it's fun, you know? I And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having fun and enjoying those experiences and them being meaningful for, for their own sake. And if we have an experience with a digital person and figure out ways to have some feeling of connection of being paid attention to of being listened to. I mean, there's definitely some risks with regards to dynamics of, of, of attachment and, and just, you know, messing with us as humans that I think are definitely of, of concern of just like, I mean, there's just risks with creating emotional love attachments to digitalness, right. That I think is kind of, unexplored unpredictable riskiness because you know heartbreak is a a real phenomena experience that can be devastating that aside i don't think there's anything 
fundamentally wrong with experiencing good feelings from those things happening in our lives, you know? I just wonder though, what does it say about the human condition when with seven and a half billion people on the earth that we're, we need to, we would think that we need to create a digital person to interact with which to interact. Like there are so many of us out there with which we could be interacting and probably should be interacting. You know, we've gotten this far as a species without needing to have, you know, an artificial person. Well, we have plenty of artificial people. We, we have, we have our, our pet canines. We have the, the robot people. People make friends with Roombas. Uh, before that, people made friends with, with stars in the sky. Oh, look, that's Orion. And that's, that's raw. Raw loves me and, and so on. Like sure. it's, it's the same relationships we have with other human beings to some extent, but we were still the person who was having that relationship was the one who actually defined, uh, what that person is, who that was. It was an extension of the imagination. With an artificial person or artificial intelligence, you don't have that. Someone else is deciding that, right? And so, if you want to have that type of interaction, I feel like we could probably, as a society, do way better devoting our resources to improving the human condition among each other by interacting with each other and understanding each other's hopes and dreams and heartbreaks and struggles, right? Than if we were going to spend the resources and the time to develop an artificial person with which to interact. If I think of what we want to do to help people, if we want to help everyone, help the human condition to help, you know, w- you know and just improve lives and, and create joy around people. I feel like, you know, spending toil creating an artificial person is a, is a fool's errand to that, to that end. Well, it's what you described would be more effective, but it's outside of our skill set. <laughs> you <laughs> need George me- Lucas for that. Let me agree but disagree on, on one thing. I'll give you a couple examples. Imagine your family has, let's call it an artificial person who's with your family for hundreds of years and is the keeper of the cumulative wisdom of like your, your great, great, great grandparents and, and, and is like that wise uncle or aunt or grandparent that just has the whole history of your family all the way through and can be pulled up and, you know, is that kind of totem with the family all the way it's just an example of something a human being can't do but could be kind of interesting it's like we keep photo albums now we have uh video albums of family what if that you had a like almost like that shaman of the family who you could talk to and could give you the accumulated wisdom of all your ancestors like wouldn't that be kind of interesting We've had that accumulated wisdom passed down without having the the demonstrable technological privilege of being able to afford to purchase not only an artificial person but the means with which to prop- to keep that artificial person going. Right? I mean, they've had they've had books and scrolls, they've had cultural pass downs, they've had uh, you know just word of mouth passing down these stories that have been great and rich stories. Like you know, for for those of us who are descendants of slaves, like I know who my family members were. Not because they were written down anywhere, not because they had any technology to preserve it, but they were preserved through word of mouth. Um, you know, lineage was written in Bibles somewhere. Um, and so we have that and we have the stories behind that, that to me tells, you know, it, it speaks to why, why carrying those things forward is important. But it also speaks that, that it, even if such technology existed back then, it would still be only to the very, very privileged, 
right? And so I think that we need to acknowledge that when a lot of things we're talking about, talk about why people haven't become enlightened. It is, it is definitely, I mean, almost, almost certainly an extension of privilege that you have the time and the ability to be able to spend time enlightening yourself versus trying to survive. Right. And I think if we spend the time to improve everyone's condition to where survival is not a struggle, then we will see much more enlightenment. We would actually see, I think, a dramatic leap forward in what we are capable of as, as a culture and as, as humanity. But we spend time shooting billionaires in the space instead. When you say moving people from survival not being a struggle, like what is that level that you think everyone is beyond the day to day struggle? And is in that place. What what does that mean? You think on on across our collective country or countries? I know for me, I have I have been in a place where I didn't know where my next wheel was coming from, and I haven't had that worry in decades. Right? I don't think any of us here probably have worried about you know really like are we going to eat today? You know, are we going to have a place to live today? Maybe we've had those struggles before, but right now, you know, we're we're five of us sitting around here talking on the internet. Those are probably not our struggles. Right. Um, but there are people in this world that, you know, we can all acknowledge we have, which don't have that. They are wondering, like, am I going to have the lights on today? Like in the country we are on that only has the power on for like four hours a day, is our food going to spoil? Can we, you know, the, the, the various conditions under which people struggle? I think if we could get a baseline, you know, just have a baseline, you know, arbitrage where people have power, they have access to clean water, they have access to healthcare, they have access to what we define the basic needs of, of food, health, you know, power, you know, access to the rest of the world via the internet, you know, as a, as a baseline. So that when they're not, they're not concerned with what we take for granted as the basic things. Like I know if I get sick, I, there's a hospital I can go to. I don't know how much it's going to cost, but I can go right now and I get access to hospital. Like to have those kinds of things handled allows people the privilege to be able to really then look beyond, you know, the essence of struggle, like, you know, the taking care of the, of the animal brain, right? And we can now look beyond those things. We can now say, Hey, what does it mean now? They can examine the condition a lot better when they're not hungry. And I, and I feel like, you know, for us, like these things are all great to, to talk about. But I think, you know, if, if there's a place where I'm going to turn my, my attention, if I can, beyond the basics of, you know, feeding my family, I would love to do that. And then see what the world becomes in 50 years or 100 years um, when so many more people are freed from having the struggle of survival and we have now the point where we talked about, you know, before where now we're all equal people in this society of the globe. And now we all have our equal ideas that we can contribute to um, moving us forward instead of so many of us just trying to, to stay alive. I tell you what's interesting, like my, um, I agree with you. The thing that I, I wonder about, first of all, I think it would be great if there is a way by the way, I think technologically, there is a way to get everyone on the planet out of their survival mode. I, I really think we have the, the smarts, the capabilities, the resources to actually do that. Why we can't organize to do that, I'm not sure, but I totally believe we can. There, there's like zero reason. In fact, I, I was at this uh, thing in 2005, it was the World Economic Forum, where like just the biggest billionaires and people that run the country, the world, they get together. And I was there as a technology pioneer. So every, every year they'll pick like a number of like 
startup people or and they want you to commingle with the people that like run the biggest things on the planet. It was a very weird experience. But the, the one of the things they were talking about was this issue. Like, how do we solve that? And I'm just sitting there going, all of you in this effing room could actually solve this today, right now. You really could. There's there's meetings, there's dinners, people are talking about it. I'm like, that's good that you're doing it. But you literally can. All of you have the means to do it. Like, where is the... But they didn't, right? They, they didn't do it, but they were talking about doing it. I'm like, do you like talking about doing it more than doing it? So that was one thing. I don't know why we haven't been able to organize. But the other piece is like my my grandparents, my great-grandparents, like everyone was like as dirt poor as you can imagine. But they were like more spiritual and transcendent and enlightened. And that as, you know, as we got up, right? Like, like I look at my cousins and like we started to like, Everyone struggled and then like my parents did a little better and we did a little better. Like people seem to be less concerned about becoming enlightened and improving and more concerned about what's the next car they're going to buy. And we, we, we do need to bring everyone to that baseline. I totally agree. But I haven't seen it make people get spiritually better, get, get themselves together more. It's more of like they, they go down a, a different path of, of just wanting more cars, more things and less enlightened. Uh, it's kind of weird. I, I don't know why. In fact, the, the more money, maybe the, the inverse proportion of enlightenment, it's, it's a weird phenomenon. Not that you want people to be impoverished. Like, we want to pull people out of that. I think that's important. But as you go to the other side, it's just, you just like, you almost like zap that part of your brain away. You have too much money. It sort of makes you not sensitive anymore to what's happening in the world. There's this game of capitalism. That is, you know, this, this game of business of how much, how much money can we make? And you see different folks at different tiers of playing these, these various games. Whether, you know, you're in the workforce and you're thinking about how do I get the highest paying job and be able to buy a nice house? And, and there's a set of rules and thinking of how to excel in that. Then you've got this world of like investment and, you know, and, and just playing at another level of abstraction. But in both of those dynamics, there's this game and these rules and this idea of what it means to win that seems to anchor people's thinking and drive. And then as you know, we learn from others what it means to win. And we see other people being successful in that and and you know, they go and buy a new fancy car and then, you know, we're like, well, they want a fancy car. Well, I want a fancy car too, you know? And, and so we, we mimic these desires from other folks in our culture at, you know, whatever game we're fascinated by. And I feel like some of those things are some of the fundamental things that need to shift is these game mechanics that we're, we're anchoring around. And, you know, one of the things from the flow book is Chick Semihai talks about how symbols are deceptive and they have a way of distracting us from the realities they're supposed to represent. So there's these symbols of things that we, we chase, a, you know, better job, a, a bigger house, more money, etc. And these symbols are things that are supposed to make us happy. And then we end up chasing the symbol. And often, you know, people that are, you know, have all kinds of money playing these games, doing all this stuff, they still haven't found a way, even with all these things, to find happiness to find joy in their lives. And I feel like if we can learn and reorient around the experience of joy, the experience of 
creation, of creating with other people, of learning how to have and how to experience these really cool highs in life and turn those kinds of experiences into the goals that we have, that maybe we can break free of the chains of you know, things that we play of what it, what it means to win, what it means to win at life. I mean, is, is effectively like what we're talking about here. I was going to say, you know, as you're describing that, it's like, okay, then how do we rebuild, you know, maybe not rebuild is a word. It's, it's how do we, how do we cultivate a culture amongst those of us who are interested to orient us towards this collectivism and community versus this kind of self-actualization and individualization that we tend to be orienting to here in this country and other first world countries. I, I, I happen to believe we have the ability to build culture and that that is something we got to spend more time and money doing. So makes me think also of this, you know, blog post I stumbled upon a few years ago that was comparing Maslow's hierarchy of needs structure to that of the Blackfoot Indian community and saying how he had kind of taken that for inspiration and used his own cultural and his own kind of lived experience to change the narrative around what that was or, you know, to create this new conceptual model. And they started with self-actualization. And I believe as it got, as it went up, it was more oriented towards community. And so I, I, I keep going back to like, yeah, our first nations people around the world. And I think there's a lot of wisdom there that we haven't tapped into. And we sometimes believe that there's no technology there, but there's a ton of technology in those communities that we just have kind of discarded or the belief is now that that's not, that's not revolutionary when in fact it probably has been revolutionary the whole time. And we've just, you know, set out to believe something different. No, totally agree. Uh, Shante, you asked the question, are we technology? I, I think so. Uh, <laughs> th- there's probably very little doubt that we are. I think we're just becoming aware of that. And we're sort of becoming mm-hmm. aware that we're in some kind of sim with rules. And not just one rule set. So I think, like, depending on where you're going, like, you could play the accumulate the gold coins rules, build, you know, like, amass the kingdom or... You can go down the enlightenment path. Like there, I think there's like multiple games in the sim at the same time, and th- that makes the game design quite interesting. <laughs> I'm coming more and more convinced that's what's going on. It's like the Tour de France. There's multiple games. People are competing for different things. Yes, it's an open game world. It is, and I think we have to continue to you know remind ourselves of that. And one of the questions I had written down, just sort of between our last call and this one is just like, you know, who are we going to give the power? Like, how are we going to empower people who maybe don't have the technology and the resources to develop and design these games? Like, how do we get them the tools and how do we make it a little bit more equitable so that we can have new lived experiences and realities? Like, because if I go back to this, like, you know, first nations or indigenous people, it's like, are are we including them in these conversations? Are we talking to folks who aren't using this technology every day? And then once we bring them into the conversation, how do we say, okay, here's something. Maybe they don't want it, but here's something. Let's see what you build. I think what one of the things that's going on, one of the game mechanics Darwin uncovered, which is survival of the fittest. 
I think that's happening. And I think technically savvy people are using their capabilities to evolve past non-technically savvy people. Those capabilities give you like huge advantages of like resource power, control, like, and then that gives them an ability to create even more technology to create. So I, you think about a survival of the fittest game mechanic, um, technology actually plays into that really well. Like it's, it's, a, I think it's emerging out of that. It's like the, the human mind. If, if you, if you don't believe in Darwin, it doesn't matter. It's happening. It believes in you. Just like don't believe in gravity. Don't believe in climate change. We believe in you anyway. We're going to flood the earth. We're going to burn down California. Like climate change is going to do its thing. Physics going to do a thing. Doesn't care if it believes in you or not. Doesn't need you to believe in it. I think Darwin doesn't need you to believe in Darwin either. It's just happening. Um, and those who don't believe in it, you're going to get evolved away because the people that believe in it tend to be more on the science tech, understanding what's going on side, and they are disproportionately winning past the people who are stuck. I actually think like the way we're a product of some version of us that evolved past other versions of us that went extinct, I kind of worry but probably realize that's what's happening. You know, the, the, the tech-enabled folk are the ones who are literally winning this survival of the fittest, and they're just zooming past everyone else. And in 50 years, it's going to be the gap is so unbelievably wide that, that it's, I don't know what's going to happen, but like, it, it feels like a Darwinian lever. That's what it feels like what's going on. It's just, and we're having a spike, like, you know, Evolution is not just linear. It has these like discontinuities. It feels like tech is one of those discontinuities that's creating a spike and we're evolving into something else. We're like fusing into tech to be these like tech bio things that are all outrun, outpass, out intelligence, our classic selves, like, you know, what we are right now. I don't know what you do with everyone who is not keeping up. Like that's where the compassion and empathy has to come in. Like how do you pull everyone forward? educate everyone because if they don't they literally are in the darwin rule going to get left behind in a serious way that's what's kind of scary sounds very doom and gloom i didn't mean to like go there we have to end on a much happier note (laughs) well should we move on to reflections does anyone have a happy reflection they want to kick off with i think that the thing that when we're all talking about i I do like to i I do like damien's notion of, of the drum circle Right. Where I feel like as a, we as a global community, hopefully can get to the point where we can all bring our drums to the circle and just see what comes out of it. Right now we are playing sheet music. <laughs> we probably need to, to get on the same sheet of music and then, and then learn to, to just bring our drums to the circle. Um, I, I think a lot of things we talked about are, are kind of steps along the way, but I do think that we all have to do our part to make sure everybody can be included in this. And get to that kind of, you know, democratic anarchistic notion where everybody is equal and everybody's input is as, is as valuable as everyone else's. But that's the goal, right? That's the goal where everybody is is valued, everyone is heard, um, and everybody is seen. And I think that's that's a noble goal for anybody. Totally agree. I love that uh, reflection, by the way, Tim. And I think where I'm really curious is just you know, going back to something that Roni said around how do we build these decentralized guilds, right? Connected by blockchains. And so that's something I, that I will, I wrote down that I would love to just continue to dream about and 
of course, anybody that, you know, those of us on this call today, it's like, let's, let's continue this conversation offline somewhere at Roni's. Uh, <laughs> uh, Cause technology is not being nice to us today, <laughs> but I'm really inspired and just so happy we got a chance to have this conversation again. Thank you. The thing I keep coming back to is this breaking out of these nets. How do we break out of the nets and create opportunity to innovate, invent, to rethink, to enable new sorts of things to happen? As long as we're sort of stuck in this current path of momentum that kind of already exists, that we're already moving toward it's a challenging road we're on. We've got a lot of big problems that need solving that can be solved, that we're capable of solving, and yet we don't do it. And why don't we do it at an abstract level? Well, we're stuck in these nets. And I think about, you know, your background, Ronnie, that you talked about with starting pretty much as a, as a, as a founder. You know, you're going down the entrepreneur route because you don't fit in easily in, in the existing system. So, you know, it's much easier to operate in a mode of building your own. One of the things I've been thinking about is how do we create more entrepreneurship and enable more entrepreneurial innovation to happen and teach and create space for the that sort of those sort of skills. And I feel like this goes together with the distributed self-organizing, you know, whatever that emergence of new sort of social order is that thinking that way of being in that unstructured space of being okay with the discomfort and being able to kind of create your way out of the box is like something that we need to take create a deliberate effort to cultivate, to, to make space for that won't happen on its own unless we make a deliberate effort to bring that world into existence. I think we need empathy, compassion, imagination, freedom, courage, coupled to our crazy new technology. So it, it's my, my version of like, we sort of need Jimi Hendrix's and Gandhi's and MLK's. Because they existed, that gives me hope that like more of that's possible. And that wasn't technology we made. That was some like those people found something in them that I think we all have. We just got to tap into. So I, I kind of think that's really important. The other last funny thing I, I want to, I'll send it to you. This is about the glitch and crashing audio equipment. But the, one of the best things I ever recorded with my band, we jammed for like 10 minutes and then we went back and played. We recorded it to tape. We only recorded 35 seconds of it. I'll send you that 30. It was the best 35 seconds I ever did. But it's like, what happened to that 10 minutes? It was like, oh, my God, that was the best session ever. And then we went back to play and we're like, no, no, that couldn't possibly have happened. We have no idea what we did. It was like the spirit came and took us. And at like 32 seconds, you, you see it taking off. And then it's just like the tape broke. So I salvaged that 35 seconds. I'll send it to you guys. You can stick it into the podcast. But it's really funny. And it's like, it's that glitch. Just when you're on the groove, it crashes everything. So I'm going to get off because I've got to jump into something. But I also hope I don't crash this session. So hopefully this one works out. 
But uh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. I thank really, for really appreciate here, it. It was awesome. We went in some cool places. Thank, thank you, you, everyone. Thank you so much. It was great. All right. Thank peace. you. Peace. Bye-bye.